The Alan Watts iPhone app is now available on the iTunes App Store, featuring the entire Alan Watts podcast series at your fingertips. Visit alanwattsapp.com for more information. Now, as you know, this is the great discussion going on in what we call today the new theology, the revolution within standard brand Christianity. Because you see, for years and years, the clergy, the ministry of the various churches, such as Episcopalian, Methodist, Baptist, Congregational, Unitarian, even in some cases, uh, Disciples, of Christ and Lutherans, their theological seminaries have been discussing religion in terms utterly different than you will normally hear from the pulpit. And every graduate of an intelligent theological school has a sense of intense frustration as he has to get out to work in a community or parish church because he does not believe what he is supposed to preach. And this has, in a way, been true for a long, long time. Clergy, except in the Roman Catholic Church, where the situation is somewhat different, are very heavily controlled by the laity, because he who pays the piper, calls the tune. And therefore, they are in a state of constant frustration because those who contribute most heavily and therefore are most interested in the church tend to be conservative-minded people and they want that old-time religion. Although, as a matter of fact, what they call the old-time religion is really quite modern. But still, uh, that's what they want. And uh, there are people who, as I would say, would tend to be conservative in their whole attitude to life. Because, you see, people of a more liberal disposition couldn't care less about going to church. In the British Army, they have a thing called church parade. And uh, there's a famous story about a drill sergeant who got all the troops up for church parade on a Sunday morning and he used to call out, Catholics to the right, Protestants to the left, fancy religions in the middle. (laughs) (laughs) And to the degree you see that intelligent people in our culture have any religion at all, it tends to be a fancy religion. Something uh, in the new kinds of things uh, that may be unity, Christian science, theosophy, uh, Buddhism, Vedanta, or some kind of special Protestant uh, offshoot, such as the Fellowship Church in San Francisco, or uh, the Community Church in New York, and uh, things of that kind. Very liberal, very left-wing theologically. So the the new theology comes at this time to a very large extent because A, the clergy are fed up. B, 
Christianity has its back to the wall. And the Pope knows this better than anybody. And so, hand in hand with this ecumenical movement, there goes along a reconsideration of what on earth it's all about. Is there a God? Is there God? And a lot of people are boldly saying that is to be abandoned. As an English priest, Father Maskell, put it, it is the basic assumption of the secularist movement in Christian theology that life is a journey between the maternity ward and the crematorium and that is what there is. That's it. And that, and that only is the life that the uh, Christian religion has to do with and to encounter. And therefore, more than ever, being a Christian, if it is a, an abandonment of God or of the idea that the universe is supernaturally controlled, the Christian religion fastens itself, therefore, with peculiar and increased fervor to the figure of Jesus of Nazareth. As one wit put it, there is no God and Jesus Christ is his only son. Because, you see, what otherwise makes you a Christian? There's something strange about Christianity in that it shares with Islam and Judaism what we might call theological imperialism. Christians are of even the most liberal stripe fervently believe that their religion is the best religion and they will state it by saying Either Jesus Christ is the only Son of God, that's an orthodox way, it is, as a matter of fact, it isn't really an orthodox way of saying it, but it's the way orthodox people do say it. Or they will say, Jesus is the greatest man that ever lived. The point is that you make a commitment to the following of Jesus as an historical personage. And for some reason or other, people who commit themselves to this exclusive kind of following of Jesus become exceedingly obstreperous because they will either damn other religions outright or far more insidiously damn them with faint praise. Old Buddha taught some very good things, you know, and uh, we all are indebted to his great uh, moral principles, but... And then comes this pitch, you see, for the soul following of Jesus as the Lord and Master, head and shoulders above all. Well, the trouble with that has always been that when you get into a theological argument with a person who is a Christian, you get into a situation where the advocate and the judge are the same person. That is to say, Jesus is judged the best man in the world by the standards of Christianity. Because those are the standards with, the, with which this kind of person judges. And therefore, uh, he, and, and you'll find that people who leap to these judgments usually don't know very much about any other kind of religion. The courses on comparative religion in theological schools are shockingly uh, superficial and grossly inaccurate. And... Uh, 
So this is coming to the front now, you see. In order to be the, the, to belong to the church, really, is to be saved. And to be saved is to belong to the innest in-group. You have to have an in-group, you see. If you want to know who you are, you have to belong to something. Say, if you want to distinguish yourself. Because you know who you are because of the people who aren't like you. There you get a contrast. Now, this is, this is the basic arrangement for a church. So, you see, if you want to be in some kind of an in-group, you must put everybody else beyond the pale. St. Thomas Aquinas gave the show away, actually, because he said that the blessed in heaven will often walk to the battlements and look down and delight in the justice of God being properly carried out in hell. So, uh, but you may not believe in hell, you may be very liberal, and uh, after all, it's not nice or sophisticated nowadays to believe in everlasting damnation. But we have new words for it, such as failing to be a real person. Uh, sinking below the human level. Uh, or entering into final and irremediable psychosis. All these are new words, either for damnation or heresy. And uh, so you join and you know you're saved only if somebody else isn't, if somebody else is damned. It's very difficult to believe or even to imagine a state of affairs where everyone and everything is saved. You have to be a mystic even to think about that because it requires having a state of consciousness which transcends oppositions and you can't do that along the line of ordinary logic. You have to have a new kind of logic which takes over at a certain point and this logic I'm using at the moment by pointing out that damned people and saved people need each other. They are in a symbiotic relationship with each other. They go together in the same way as the back and the front of something. Because if something has a front, it has to have a back too. And so, the very fact that fronts and backs go together indicates that there is a unity between these two opposed sides. So also, there is a unity between the damned and the saved. And it's only as you begin to realize that you need the damned people in order to be saved and that the damned people need the saved people in order to be damned that you start laughing about it. And that laughter is very subversive. And it's, you know how it is, you, you're not supposed to laugh in church and not in courts of law either. There are places where laughter makes people nervous because it's supposed... Uh, to be a sign of disrespect. Now, it may not be so at all. Dante said that the song of the angels in paradise sounded like the laughter of the universe. But in church, uh, especially any rather more serious kinds of church, laughing is very bad form. Why? Because if you look at the design of a Catholic church, you will notice that it is based upon the design of the courtroom of a king. 
And if you look at a Protestant church, you will see that it is based upon the design of a law court. Indeed, the Protestant minister wears exactly the same robes as an American judge. And all those pews and box-like stalls are the same as you will find in the old-fashioned court with the witness box, jury box, and all that kind of thing. But you see, the original idea of the Christian church, these ancient Roman churches are called a basilica. That means the courtroom of a king, the throne room. The altar is the throne of God. Now, in a courtroom, the king is very nervous because anybody who takes it upon himself to govern other people and rule them had better watch out. And therefore, he always has his back to the wall. And he is flanked by attending guards and high ministers of state. And just so that nobody will get up and make trouble, he has them either on their knees or flat on their faces when they come into his presence. And of course, no one must laugh. Because they'll be laughing at Mr. Big. And so this was the pattern. This was the model upon which the Judeo-Christian idea of God was based. It is a political model, and the title of God is taken from the supreme emperors of Persia, the Dayan Khan, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And so in the English church, at morning prayer, the clergyman gets up and says, Almighty and everlasting God, the only ruler of princes, King of kings, Lord of lords, who dost from thy throne behold all dwellers upon earth, most graciously deign to behold our gracious sovereign lady, Queen Elizabeth, and all the royal family. That's the picture. And the metaphor, you may not believe, literally, that God sits on a throne, or even has a body to put on one, or that he wears a crown, or that he has a beard, but the image colors your feeling about the character of God. And imagery is much more powerful than intellectual concepts. You may know, it says in the prayer book, that God is the spirit without body parts or passions, omnipresent to all places, eternal through all time. And therefore, one thinks, as Haeckel does, of the gaseous vertebrate. Uh, or else, of an enormously diffused sea of luminous jello filling all time and space. Everybody uses images. But behind those images are the old images that influenced us in childhood. And if you still attend a church and you use that imagery. You still think emotionally. You feel towards God as one would if you took it literally. So this political model of God has dominated the West. And the world is related to God as subjects to a king or as artifacts
You've been listening to Alan Watts from the Spoken Word Library of the Electronic University. For copies of this and other Alan Watts programs, please go to alanwatts.com on the World Wide Web or call us toll-free at 1-800-W-O-WATTS. That's A-L-A-N-W-A-T-T-S dot com or 1-800-W-O-W-A-T-T-S. The Watts website features free audio downloads, program lists, and information on Watts' life and works. Once again, that's alanwatts.com or 1-800-W-O-WATTS.